space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number seven. Or, if you've listened before, then welcome back. It's been a while again, but that just means we have more news. Life is that way, I guess. Uh, To anyone who is listening while at ASL Oktoberfest, which is going on this week in Cleveland, Ohio, I wish I could be there and play some advanced squad leader. Now, I made a comment in Wild Weasel number four that I was very dubious that MMP's last Blitzkrieg has anything new to offer gamers regarding an understanding of the Battle of the Bulge. I mean, come on, how many times have we been there before? Well, last Blitzkrieg's head researcher, Carl Fung, took umbrage at that and sent me a very nice and comprehensive rebuttal, uh, which seemed like it deserved a wider audience. So he'll be our guest on the interview segment. I actually remember emailing Carl in the old days when Vassal was just VASL because it was just Virtual Advanced Squad Leader, and Carl was the counter artist. And he was also doing some uh, modules for Aid de Camp, which was the uh, very nice but a little clunky um, predecessor to Vassal. So it was great to hear from him again and get a chance to chat. I also got a chance to chat with Dean Essig, uh, who's founder of The Gamers, and not so coincidentally, designer of Last Blitzkrieg. That's because I arranged those talks about the same time. Now, that one is a full hour-long episode on Three Moves Ahead, and uh, I'll have a link to that on the podcast page. But first, the news. Avalanche Press had a summer clearance, which I didn't get around to telling you about since there hasn't been an episode since the summer. But guess what? They have an autumn clearance now. And it's basically the same things. Uh, Get about half off on a selection of old Avalanche Press games, including Great Pacific War and some others. Uh, If you want to pick up Gazala, for example, I think it's like 10 bucks. It might be worth a look if you've been thinking about buying one of these old games. Now, One Small Step Games is re-releasing Mark McLaughlin's classic Napoleonic design, War and Peace. Um, This was originally published uh, by Avalon Hill in 1980 and is a game I played a lot of when I was in high school. The problem with the game was that while the scenarios were great, and I mean that, they were excellent, the campaign game didn't hold together. I'm not sure how they're going to address that or if there are any real fixes to this that came up in the errata. I haven't uh, really taken a look at that. Maybe if there's a Napoleonics expert out there, uh, he or she can fill me in. By the way, as long as you're at it, uh, can you tell me if Age of Napoleon by Phalanx Games is a good game? A friend of mine says it has potential. Um, Also, Putin Strikes, The Coming War for Eastern Europe by Tai Bomba is out. Uh, My copy just arrived, uh, but I don't have any thoughts yet. Uh, This is all at 
uh, ossgamescart.com. Now, Compass Games seems to have stealth released The Lamps Are Going Out, uh, designed by Kirk Ullman about World War I at the grand strategic level. Now, I'm especially interested because it was developed by Herman Lutman. Now, while it was designed by Kirk Ullman, Herman Lutman was the developer, and Herman Lutman designed in magnificent style, as well as Dawn of the Zeds and Hammer and Sickles. Uh, and he has clearly demonstrated that he knows what makes a good game. So I wonder if his skills extend to development. Uh, there was a very interesting after-action report by the First Minnesota Group posted on BoardGameGeek, and I'll post a link to, to that. And uh, you can read it if you're interested in learning more, and the game sells for $69 plus shipping from compassgames.com. Now, GMT Games uh, has been busy. They released the Labyrinth reprint, as well as the Awakening expansion for Labyrinth, as well as a bunch of other games that we talked about earlier. Uh, and more stuff is coming out. Uh, Imperial Struggle, a game about the 18th century rivalry between Britain and France, was announced over the summer and is already at almost 1,300 pre-orders. Why? Because it's being designed by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews, the designers of Twilight Struggle. Yeah, I thought so. (laughs) You can pause this podcast and go pre-order it if you want. Uh, I won't be offended. I already did. Now, Falling Sky, which is the Runke's coin game about the Gallic revolt against Caesar, is getting an expansion called Ariovistus. And No Retreat is getting a Western Front expansion. Panzer is getting France 1940 expansion. Talon is getting a Talon 1000 Space expansion. But you know what I'm very excited to see? A Russian Campaign Designer's Edition. Now, that's a deluxe version of the old Avalon Hill Classic. Okay, not one of the official classics, but classic with a lowercase c which will come with all sorts of goodies. Now, there's already been a fourth edition published by L2 Design Group, and then Russia Besieged, also from L2, which I consider just a redesigned Russian campaign. But I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff, so I'm on board. Now, check out the link uh, on the podcast page for this one. Um, There's also a game of development from GMT that I had missed called The Last 100 Yards uh, that I got clued into on Twitter by viewfromtheturret.com. And what it is, is yet another hybrid tactical game set in World War II that's supposed to take a new look at simulating tactical combat in ways that aren't overly complicated, but preserve much of the fog of war. Uh, And in that way, it sounds a lot like Combat Commander. Now, I have to admit, I got a chance to play Combat Commander a few more times, and my opinion is hardening on this one. That's really just not the game for me. Uh, But a lot of people do like it, uh, and so this game might be up their alley as well. It's called The Last Hundred Yards. Oh, and finally, regarding GMT, their Warehouse Weekend is coming up from October 13th to 16th in Hanford, California. Now, I hear great things about it, uh, so if you're in a position to go, uh, you should definitely try to make it happen. Uh, I think you can even check out some of their games early. Now, High Flying Dice Games has some new games coming out, uh, or out already. Now, Blood and Carnage, uh, the Battle of Komsomolskaya from uh, March 2000 in the Second Chechen War, um, is definitely coming out. It uses the same system as Valor and Vengeance, which is another Second Chechen War game. Uh, that one is about the Battle of Ulus Kurt. Now, I'm not sure I like this system, uh, which seems semi-tactical, yet it has this weird like eight-hour turns in which elite infantry squads get a single activation. So maybe it works better in Komsomolska. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, also out is Heroes Crossroads, about the battles for Rochroth and Krinkelt, uh, two towns in the Ardennes, during the opening phase of the Battle of the Bulge. And another upcoming game is Bloody Dawns by Pierre Razou about the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, that one will have cards and no hexes. 
Uh, and lastly, they have a new professional edition game called Bad Moon Rising about the battle for Firebase Illingsworth in Vietnam in 1970. Uh, that looks like it's pretty small. It's only $25 plus shipping. Uh, all of those are from hfdgames.com. Now, Revolution Games has Thunder in the Ozarks coming out in October, which I guess is right now. Um, that's about the Battle of Pea Ridge in March 1862. It uses the same system as Stonewall's Sword and Hammer and Sickles, and is also designed by Herman Lutman, uh, who also designed what uh, I'm told is a great game called Dawn of the Zeds. Um, I had mentioned all that stuff earlier. I did mention um, In Magnificent Style. That made my top 10 solitaire games of all time. So this is actually designed by Herman, not just developed by him. And I always keep an eye out for his stuff, uh, even though the American Civil War is not one of my strongest interests. Uh, so you should check that out. It's at uh, revolutiongames.us. Big news just from the past few days is that Multiman Publishing is reprinting Red Barricades, the popular historical module for Advanced Squad Leader about Stalingrad that was originally published in 1990. This has been a highly desired item on the secondary market for a long time, so it's great to see it'll be available again. But here's the deal. It's going to come out with a set of maps and campaign games that extend it to the Red October Factory Complex, and you can either buy it as a box set called Red Factories, or as a standalone product called Red October, if you already have Red Barricades. No option to just buy the Red Barricades reprint, though. Uh, MMP has this comment about the process, and I quote, Because of the time and cost involved in repainting the maps, we need to put this product on pre-order before it is ready, and we need to hit its P number, so number of pre-orders before it goes uh, to, sh to printing, before we ask Charlie, that's Charlie Kibler, to repaint the maps. Charlie is a busy artist, and we can't be sure how long it will take him to repaint the maps, but we will be sure to be ready on our end with rules, scenarios, and counters laid out in order to print Red Factories as soon as the maps are ready. That's the end of their quote. So the prices are going to be $99 on pre-order for Red October, or $123 for the full Red Barricades package. Um, as far as I'm concerned for ASL, uh, this is a must-buy. I can't believe that they're going to get Charlie to repaint everything um, and even have another factory complex. That's just... Um, I'm really excited. Now, uh, speaking of, of uh, historical advanced squad leader, MMP is also reprinting uh, Festung Budapest, which is the currently out-of-print uh, historical ASL module about the siege of Budapest in 1945. Uh, as part of the reprint announcement, MMP also has a quote, which I'll read to you here. I quote, We are happy to announce that we are able to do a small print run of Festung Budapest to get this historical ASL module back into print. Our prior printer did such a poor job of die cutting that we lost about 25% of the original counter sheet run. This reprint will use a combination of existing parts left over from the original print job and an entirely new run of counters made by our current printer. Because this new run is small, the cost is proportionally higher, and we have increased the retail price of the game as a result. End quote. So, the price is going to be $132 by pre-order and $176 at retail. So, uh, that's pricey as far as these kind of things are concerned, but I think all war game prices are starting to really creep up. Uh, I think it's a function of how much disposable income the majority of the hobby has, frankly. I mean, it seems like it. Or at least the majority of the hobby that's buying all the games, because uh, price doesn't seem to be a very much of a pressure. So for 
Um, MMP, they have more stuff coming out. They have a bunch of games in the pipeline that I've mentioned before, including 11th Panzer on the Cheer River, um, The Last Stand, and Operation Mercury. Uh, the last one is the Air Assault on Crete, which I'm really excited about. Um, that's a tactical combat series game, I think. Uh, one thing I don't think I've mentioned is Front Toward Enemy, which is a game about tactical firefights in the Vietnam War. Um, the only other game of the sort I can think of off the top of my head is Lock and Load uh, game series Forgotten Heroes Vietnam, so this is definitely on my radar. Uh, the MMP promo blurb mentions that one of the unique features of the game is that when a unit is wounded or killed, it'll need to be transported off the board or the player may lose victory points. Uh, the most common method for the American player to do this is by making a medevac request, which will bring in a helicopter. Now, not sure how I feel about that, but it's interesting. And also up for pre-order is Baptism by Fire, which is the second game in the Battalion Combat series that started with Last Blitzkrieg. It's about the Battle of the Kazarine Pass, and once again, Carl Fung is heading up the research. So it should be an interesting one. And lastly from MMP, uh, Mike Rinell's long-out-of-print game Monty's Gamble, which uses the Area Impulse system to depict Operation Market Garden, is being reprinted again. This one came out in 2003 and has proved pretty popular. The new version is going to have an upgraded map and counters, so it might be worth upgrading if you really like this game. And so, once again, all that stuff is from multimanpublishing.com. Now, Academy Game 1775 Rebellion, um, a clever, somewhat abstract game about the American Revolution, is now available for iOS and PC, and my friend and colleague Tom Chick has reviewed it. Conclusion? Very good game, not very well ported. It doesn't sound like anything that can't be patched, though, if they decide to do it. Who knows if they have the resources for that. So I'll have a link to that review, actually, on the podcast page. It's a video review. Now, uh, B-17 Flying Fortress Leader was successfully kickstarted by Dan Verson Games, although I don't think it's actually out yet, so keep that on your radar. And Dan has some excellent games in the series, uh, including one of my favorite solitaire games, Phantom Leader. So uh, go to dvg.com for more information. Another successful recent Kickstarter was Old School Tactical Volume 2 from Mark H. Walker Games, uh, which is um, also Flying Pig Games, uh, which can that that thing hit its funding goal in 30 hours, according to the Kickstarter, so congratulations to Mark. Um, that's another one that's funded, but not out yet, but you can pre-order it by going to flyingpiggames.com. Um, some recently arrived games are Putin Strikes, the coming battle for Eastern Europe, which uh, came from One Small Step Games, and 13 Days, which is an interesting card-driven take on the Cuban Missile Crisis from Jolly Roger Games. I've read the rules, and it feels like a Cuban-flavored Twilight struggle with some very interesting twists, so I'm uh, eager to give that one a go. It's a nice compact game, which I love, and you can buy it right now for $40 from JollyRogerGames.com. And one other thing I should mention, Sekigahara by GMT. The reprint is out, and it has arrived, and it's a beautiful edition. Uh... I wouldn't let this one sell out if you're at all interested in this kind of game or in good games in general. I'd pick up a copy. One last minute note. When I was looking up links to finalize this edition of Wild Weasel, I noticed on the Multiman publishing page that Sarah Essig, the wife of Dean Essig, who is the founder of The Gamers and who I recently interviewed for Three Moves Ahead, has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. A friend of theirs has set up a GoFundMe page and I'll include a link to that at the bottom of this podcast. I encourage everyone who listens to Wild Weasel to contribute if they can do so. And that's the news. So today on Wild Weasel, 
we have Carl Fung, who is the research expert for MMP's upcoming, or I guess out now, Last Blitzkrieg. Carl, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Uh, great to be on the show. So, uh, Carl, thanks for coming on. You uh, you had sent me a, uh, a very eloquent defense of Last Blitzkrieg uh, in response to a comment that I made in, I think, Wild Weasel number four saying, uh, you know, what what could possibly be be new about a bulge game? Uh, and I was sort of sort of right. saying it, you know, kind of a little tongue in cheek, but kind of I mean, serious. You know, I've got all these bulge games. Um, uh, why would I want to get another one? And and I know that um, that the uh, the BCS series uh, is a is a whole series, and it's designed by Dean Essig. But um, how do you? You're the research expert, and so how do you feel that the design concepts, you know, that are in the BCS series help make a bulge game that's that's you know really historical and puts in the things that you look for from the history of a bulge game well certainly uh there's a number of concepts in the series rules that what it really boils down to is it uh it, it it focuses on the scale of what this bulge game represents um last bit a really brief description of it it's it represents the battle of bulge uh, the turns go from December 16th to December 31st. That's battalion scale, and the mass scale is at one kilometer per hex. And that's actually the focus of this, is that there's a wide variety of games, uh, bulge games out there that mm -hmm. are regimental, um, and the mass scale is usually about two kilometers to five kilometers. At battalion scale, you kind of go underneath that, and you get a more, little more granularity, and it's, a, it's still a little tactical. Uh, you know, regiments, you have a lot more men, Italian, you can almost have more uh, maneuver elements and a little more finite uh, way you're depicting the fighting. Um, so a lot of the concepts that uh, in the series rules uh, come out of that at that battalion scale. And that's how it kind of folds into uh, the Battle of the Bulge in, in Last Blitzkrieg. So, so how does that? How does the the battalion scale? So, the, are you are you saying that the tact, the ability to play the game at a tactical level, gives you something new? Because I mean, there are big games about bulge. Like, a, I mean, I have Vakdam Ryan sitting in the closet. Right. Uh, so, what 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 do I get out of the battalion scale? Uh, you do get that grand line, and certainly the, with the, that grand optional uh, operational uh, series, you you have that uh, battalion scale as well. Um, the BCS and Las Buscu kind of looks at the battalion scale at, I guess, a different level. I mean, see, it's like, a, you know, everyone's going to compare battalion to battalion scale, but um, there's different uh, approaches to, to, to the two different games, even though they're at the same scale. Mm -hmm. um, so what I could do is I can go into some of these concepts and sure. then kind of draw parallels to, you know, how they are related to the bulge or where examples come out there. That'd so, be great. Yeah, and, and certainly uh, that since... Since Last Biscuit was the first design for uh, for the BCS rules, uh, the the BCS rules themselves kind of evolved as we were designing and testing it. So a lot of things that, that were very specific and unique to fighting the Battle of the Bulge kind of went back into the series rules. And then, you know, kind of with hindsight, it's like, yeah, these are also applicable for uh, other battles. Okay. So, But, you know, the, the predecessor is really looking at the Battle of the Bulge. So let me start off by uh, pointing one of the system design aspects, which is uh, objectives. Mm -hmm. um, you Objectives are, are required. Uh, they're like little markers uh, when you activate a formation. Uh, basically, what BCS is, is uh, alternating formation by formation between both sides. Uh, so you usually have uh, two objective markers uh, at the very outcome. 
depending on your snafu, and we'll talk about snafu mm-hmm. in a little bit. Yep. Uh, it's to designate and limit uh, what can be done for that formation, mm-hmm. uh, and it really makes the player plan ahead what he wants to do to activation. You know, it. I, I think we've seen a lot of games where you, okay, let me make this attack. Okay, you know what? That attack failed. I'm just going to go in a completely different direction mm-hmm. because I'm allowed to. There's no kind of restriction or, or I won't call it restriction, but uh, guidance, coordination. If you think about a commander, a commander's like, for the day, I've committed so-and-so forces, I've committed so-and-so supplies, so-and-so support to attack these objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, the best correlation I can bring that up for the bullet was uh, the 116th Panzer on the very first day. Mm-hmm. They were committed to attack a regiment of the 20th Infantry Division, mm-hmm. and their whole attack failed uh, on the very first day. The whole division didn't reroute the whole day because, again, the, they had committed so many uh, of, of their forces and support to that attack that they just kind of halted that entire day. Mm-hmm. Only in subsequent days, when they redefined objectives, and were they able to either you know move around to to get around the, you know, the Americans because they had uh, stopped the attack cold. Okay. So that's where objectives kind of come into play. But this leads into the next concept, which is uh, reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. So uh, reconnaissance use units, which are usually like the armored cars or like the scouts. Uh, these play an important role because uh, as much as objectives are set to find when you activate a formation, reconnaissance units can be sent out to identify additional objectives. So just like in real life where uh, reconnaissance units go out, scout, identify an enemy, they're marked, targeted, and then other forces can say, okay, I know that uh, there's a new enemy out there and I'll, I can go jump them and you know continue with the mission. Um, so, and, you know, you were talking about, like, uh, German panzer divisions and how strong they are. Uh, these German panzer divisions usually had a propensity for up-arming their reconnaissance battalions. You know, usually the reconnaissance battalions had uh, scout cars, half-tracks, mm-hmm. uh, mechanized infantry. Mm-hmm. And these, what the Germans did was they usually created comp group. And what they did was they attached, like, a company of... Panthers or Mark IVs or, or uh, Jagdpanzers mm-hmm. uh, to these to kind of beef them up and really make them like a true like recon by fire. So the game really portrays these conflict group and like uh, uh, Stefan uh, Van Folloy and Craig, which are all part of the, the Panzer divisions or SS Panzer divisions that kind of fought in the bulge. Mm-hmm. So that's recon. So what you're doing, what you're saying is that, because that's an interesting concept because I, I always wondered about, you know, there, there's these recon units that... Uh, that I always found a little funny in war games because I mean, okay, I can I can do recon. You know, these things can move really fast, but I can see where your counter is. It's right over there, right? right. So, so are you saying that there's a way for the? Uh, and I haven't read the BCS rules, so I'm going to have to do this now. Is there there's a way for the recon units to then allow the formations to to change objectives or to or to um, redefine their objectives? Yes, it's it doesn't. Uh, change objectives, the original objective there, but what it can do is it, uh, it can mark a new objective. And it's not automatic. Uh, mm-hmm. We're also talking about how good the quality of the recon units are. Okay. Uh, and usually the, the German Panzer divisions had devoted all their best troops to these recon battalions, and they usually had the uh, best troops. You know, perfect example of it uh, is uh, the, the SS guy who did the charge back across the, the uh, Arnhem Bridge. You know, granted, it was suicidal, but they were built of very hardcore stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on uh, how good these troops are, 
And BCS uses the same concept as OCS with, with the action rating. So the higher the action rating, mm -hmm. you're kind of rolling against that to see basically, or if you have good troops, they're going to be able to identify the uh, enemy a lot better than than uh, uh, otherwise. Okay. So so tell me so tell me now you were talking about the Germans how they you know the Germans uh, units were organized, but you made a comment to me when you uh, when you were arguing for the for the relevance of this of this model was the idea of the mixed task force model for specifically for U.S. armored divisions. Is there something in Bulge Games that doesn't adequately portray the way U.S. armored divisions worked historically? Ah uh, yes, this is my wheelhouse. This okay. is uh, this is my this is order of battle research, which uh, I uh, probably aim over retentive about. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so what I usually see in games is U.S. armored divisions have uh, you know three combat commands. You have a combat command A, combat command B, and a weaker uh, combat, combat command server. Yeah. Right. And honestly, I, I hate this because it's generic. If you actually delve down and you actually read the after-action reports or the unit histories, mm -hmm. each U.S. Armored Division was customized either depending on the division commanders or the, the lower commanders, how they perceived how to organize their, their troops to fight. Okay. And, you know, other games will either have the pure tank battalions as their pure tank battalions or the Armored Infantry as pure Armored Infantry. That wasn't necessarily the case. You also have other games that basically gets to break down the t tank battalions and the armored infantry and then reform them into perfect units because given the godlike knowledge for all these players, they're like, oh, I'm going to form this because I know they don't have any uh, any tanks there, so I'm just going to stack up all my tanks and charge there. Right. That, that's that kind of like player forethought. Mm -hmm. So with me, with our research intensity, it's it's like, well, let me show you how they actually organize it and kind of remove that uh, element from yourself and just concentrate on activating the formations and, and completing your mission. Um, so, like, a perfect example I I have here is the U.S. 10th Armored Division. Okay. So, the U.S. 10th Armored Division, they sent off their C uh, Common Command B to Bastogne. That's the, the famous CCB that uh, was composed of three different teams, O'Hara, DeZobri, and Cherry. Mm -hmm. um, and these good guys are pretty well known, but to really show their combined armed nature, you know, if you show the pure tank battalions or pure armored infantry, you're not really showing how these guys actually operated, especially given how famous they are fighting alongside the 101st Airborne. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially these three teams, what they were composed of is one tank company and an armored infantry company. That's the kind of like one-to-one -one ratio with combined arms. Okay. Um, and they had you know, supporting units as well. So in BCS terms, what this is is that it's considered a dual unit. Um, basically, it has an armor value, which is basically representative of the Sherman and other armor that they had, mm -hmm. and an assault arrow, which basically means that they can uh, close assault. Okay. So you have that duality within the counter that kind of really truly represents how these teams actually operated. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, for the rest of like the 10th armor that kind of fought along the southern shoulder of, of the bulge, they had a very large combat command day and basically nothing in their uh, combat Command Reserve. Mm -hmm. So Combat Command A had uh, Task Force Chamberlain, Standish, and Riley, and Riley was really just kind of like these leftover armored infantry with supporting arms. Mm -hmm. So again, so to actually depict how the forces were actually organized, mm -hmm. and it really shows you, well, it really goes to the story. It, it shows you that there was a Task Force Chamberlain that fought. There was a Task Force Standish that, that actually uh, fought, and you're not either customizing or having these generic units like roaming around the map. Okay. 
So that so that's I mean so you're t- you just talked about story that you that by giving these uh, by giving these counters you know these these historical identities and and really breaking down their their capabilities these are this is this is sort of a more bulgy bulge than <laughs> than other bulges but I mean when you talk about story the thing that you do that you mention that you're prod that you don't include in, as part of the story is things like the Scorsini Brigade um, because. Well, why? I mean, does is you, you call it mythology? Um, wh- wh- why? Why don't you want to put that in? That's part of the story, isn't it? Because, well, let's not call it mythology. Let's say I'm not necessarily trying to myth bust anything. I'm rather trying to myth clarify things. Uh, I write this whole uh, history section in in the in the game specific rules, kind of uh, what I call the fiddly bits, which is basically defining like you know why certain things were done in the game and. One of the things I touch on is, is with Scorsese's Brigade. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously with a lot of the Bulge games, you have this, you know, the, the known story that Scorsese brought in all these troops. He, he took some slugs and some panthers and mm-hmm. mocked them up, made them look like tank destroyers. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, they were supposed to sneak by the Americans, this and that. Mm-hmm. But in reality, even Scorsese admitted that the ruse wouldn't work because he said it will only work on green American troops mm-hmm. when they see the tanks, the vehicles. And the men who are even uniformed in British uniforms, they they will not they'll immediately spot away, and mm-hmm. only, they'll only be able to get away with it if it's very very far, even at night. Mm-hmm. So that's where it's you know you can add in all this the, the, the chrominess and and anything that makes it look like a bullet, but I, I don't I didn't see it as something that had to be included just because I don't think by exact definition that it just by being a bullish game. I mean, when you actually look at the history itself, when when the when Scorzani actually committed his troops, he actually right off the bat decided, you know what, let's drop the sham, let's not pursue our original mission of trying to supposedly sneaking by. Mm-hmm. And that was on day two, even before he was even in contact with American troops. Mm-hmm. When he was committed and, and attacked Malmody a few days later, no one fell for it and basically all the mocked up tanks were destroyed pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So so the the uh, the last question I think I have is is you know you, you talk about all these different things that really are a, an effort to make to, to really research orders of battle and sort of the way that the, these units were employed so that the game can portray them in their historical sense. But it, mm-hmm. the, the the snafu system, which which you describe as as a way in which you sort of uh, determine randomly determine whether a a, a unit or actually a formation, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, has a, an attack that's well-coordinated or not. And the, 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 as you describe it, the chance of having it be better coordinated depends on the troop quality. So right. uh, high-quality troops will, will be more likely to take full advantage of their support and their supplies. Um, can't that be said for any battle? And wouldn't that work just as well as in, for example, like uh, you know Operation Bagration or uh, some kind of Eastern Front game or even, heck, I don't know, Italy? Oh, certainly. And stuff is one of the concepts in, in the series with us is going to be applicable uh, to different battles. Um, one thing that Snafu really focuses on the bulge, or, or what we do, or I guess vice versa, what the bulge kind of does with the Snafu rating is that uh, there's game-specific uh, Snafu die roll modifications. Mm-hmm. Um, what this does is, you know, you look when you look at the Germans, they start off very strong, mm-hmm. and then they kind of dwindle down in... Uh, their momentum because their supplies get uh, you know thwacked in the back by by American air power. Mm-hmm. Um, so their initial die roll modifier 
they get a plus one mm-hmm. at the very get-go. That's basically like they're ready to go, they're fully stocked up and supplied, and they jump off. Mm-hmm. And then as the turns go by, that drops to zero, saying that they're kind of slowing down, mm-hmm. you know, see what they could do. The Americans are cashing up. And then eventually, pretty much by Christmas Eve, they have a minus one modifier. And what that does is that it kind of causes them to not... Uh, commit their forces as easily or, or to that full amount as they could. They could, but it, it's harder for them to do so. And that, again, uh, translates to you know, their, the dwindling supply situation and kind of the, their morale is kind of going down just because they're, they're grinding. Um, and you have on the opposite side with the allies who actually start off at a negative two with their snafu mm-hmm. viral modification because you know, they, they're initially surprised and they don't know what's going on. There's a huge fog of war. It's like, where are they attacking? Where are all these German forces coming from? Mm-hmm. And then slowly that, uh, that viral modifier you know, goes to a negative one and to zero, uh, where basically it's zero by the time that you know, Pan's Third Army and Colin's Seventh Corps kind of comes in on December 22nd and starts counterattacking. It's like, okay, we know the situation. We know everything there. So mm-hmm. that's where the Stafford rating and with respect to the bulge, uh, kind of go hand in hand and, and kind of go, again, go along with that story of getting that ebb and flow right uh, for, for units. And a lot of factors go into snafu, like uh, how good is your, your main supply route in the back? Um, how fatigued your men are? Are you rubbing up against your neighbor forces? And that causes a lot of coordination issues. So basically snafu is... <laughs> You can cause your own pain if you, right. if you don't if you don't watch out for yourself. Well, it's interesting that you know the, that you have a way of, of forcing people to sort of keep their uh, you know to dress their lines sort of so to speak because oh, absolutely. Uh, you know it's it's yeah. it's uh, it's always been interesting. I mean, the games can be interesting for a number of reasons, and 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 you know there I, I I enjoy different games for different things, but uh, it's always sometimes a little funny where you're kind of you know you're. You're scrounging to say, okay, where can I get two factors? So let's get these Romanians. Yeah, they, can they get the yeah? Move the Romanians. Just put the Romanians in the stack. And you know, it's it's pretty historical. But I mean, you know, and it works for certain things. So I just right. I, I'm I'm interested to see how uh, how a little bit more rigorous uh, rigorous approach goes. Well, you know what? So you you may have done the near impossible, uh, which is to um, to convince me to add another bulge game to my to my. Uh, collection so i guess if you're you'd you that's 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 pretty amazing uh if you're able to somehow get me to to add another normandy game to my collection then you'll be some kind of <laughs> amazing genius so but uh carl thanks a lot for coming on and explaining that that was uh that was great no worries Bruce. thank you all right bye A strange confluence of events got me to this week's pontification segment, uh, which was that I finally got to sit down this weekend and play a game I've been dying to get to the table, and that's Kim Kanger's Tonkin, about the French and the China War, otherwise known as Vietnam the Prequel. Now, I'm sure regular listeners of this podcast are rolling their eyes a little bit and going, oh my god, Bruce, what's with the Kim Kanger games already? Yes, I did name King Kanger's Dien Bien Phu the Final Gamble as my number one war game of all time, and I mean it. Um, if you listen to that podcast, you'll know why, and many of the things that make that such a good game are present in Tonkin as well. Now, I've been dying to try it out against someone, and this past weekend I did. Now, my friend Don and I played the scenario Disaster on Route Colonial 4, which is a three-turn deal depicting the French catastrophe on the Chinese border in 1950. 
Now, the other thing that got me thinking was the recent death of Shimon Peres, uh, who at 93 was the last founding leader of the state of Israel to die. Now, I'm not Israeli, uh, I'm not even Jewish, but I somehow found his death very affecting. And I think it has something to do with my appreciation for war games. I've always been fascinated by history, as many of us are, and for that reason, I've been keenly aware of its passing. I remember thinking as a child when hearing about the Normandy invasion or the Warsaw Uprising or Stalingrad, that those people would only be with us for so long. And the idea of something passing out of living memory was something that was acutely painful for me because of the way I guess I identified with things that had happened in our past, even if it wasn't specifically my past, because well, in a way, it was and is. Um, I, you know, I still remember a class trip to the Gettysburg Battlefield in, it must have been, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade, where they took us out to Seminary Ridge and how I was terrified to walk out to where Robert E. Lee had met his troops returning from Pickett's Charge. And I mean, my knees were actually trembling. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's probably an overreaction. I was a kid, but, you know, it seemed overwhelming to me to stand in the same spot where, you know, barely a hundred years ago, one of the greatest generals in American history had lost the greatest battle in American history. I mean, he was right there on his horse. It was on that land. It's the same field, the same place. Um, and I was then who I am now partly because of what happened there. I wasn't even born in this country, yet what happened in that battle changed everything about my subsequent experience. And all of ours, obviously. Uh, maybe I wouldn't have ended up here at all, or... If I did, certainly not the same way. I mean, if the battle had been different, uh, it wouldn't have been the same country. Now, my grandfather fought in two wars, uh, the Russo-Polish War of 1920 as an 18-year-old conscript, and in World War II in the Warsaw Uprising as a 42-year-old insurgent uh, with the Home Army, uh, where he was ultimately taken into captivity by the Germans. Now, he did survive. Uh, he never talked to me about what he'd experienced, uh, which would make me sad, except that I think what he experienced <laughs> would have distressed him terribly to relate to anyone, especially his young grandson. What I do remember is uh, watching the TV news in the U.S. in 1981, uh, which showed Polish shipyard workers uh, marching towards the line of riot police, and they were shouting to the cops to join them and drop their weapons. And I remember my grandfather sitting there watching the TV, and he didn't really understand any English, but he was intently watching the screen, and you could hear some brief seconds where there was no voiceover uh, in the TV, and you could hear the chanting. You could make it out in Polish. And I didn't understand what was going on then, of course. Uh, I was way too young, um, going on with him anyway. But it, it, now it seems to me, uh, it must have been that um, he saw that on TV. And I'm assuming he thought of, you know, decades of Polish history and what he'd found uh, or fought for over, you know, 60 years prior to that, 1920. And after that in World War II, what his country had suffered since. And, you know, what those marchers meant, not just to him, but to history. And you know, it, it's hard to imagine anything quite like that connection um, where you what you've lived plays out in front of you in its most basic context. And, and that's the connection that we lose when things pass out of living memory and into some kind of record that becomes harder and harder to understand. Which brings me back to Kim Conger's Tonkin, um, because at the end of our game, uh, my friend commented that he wasn't sold not completely because he felt like he just didn't have a grasp of what he should have been doing. 
you know, even though he won, he won by a few victory points. It was very close. Uh, it was at the first game for both of us. Uh, he felt like he was manipulating counters instead of making plans. You know, it was all abstraction to him. Kill these guys, occupy this, get some victory points, whatever. But on my side, the experience was completely different uh, because I think, I, you know, I've done a lot of reading about the whole conflict just uh, tons of books and how the French struggled to move in rough terrain and carry out operations against the Viet Minh on the frontier while trying to hold the Red River Delta, um, how the road from Haiphong to Hanoi was constantly being cut and French troops had to clear it every day because of the constant night attacks. And, and when I played the game, I had exactly these same problems. Now, my friend had surrounded my northern force, uh, which was on Route Colonial 4. That was the French near the Chinese border. At the same time, he tried to threaten my southern garrisons. Um, he was pushing two whole Viet Minh division against the Delta. And I sat there and I thought, oh, what can I do? You know, I have all these troops, but they're all tied down. You know, I can't move this guy or this guy or, or that guy. Maybe, you know, this other guy? Oh, you know, that's a risk. I'm sitting there looking at all my troops I'm I'm just so stretched so thin, you know. But I'm going to get overrun down there, and that's going to you know that's going to lose me the game. And I had this single group mobile, uh, which was this powerful mobile force that was really my only mobile force. And I had this Dina So unit, which is a amphibious um, river uh, unit, pretty powerful and can transport things. And so I managed to use the combination of the group mobile uh, and the Dina So to uh, clear a road. Uh, I used overrun movement in combat, and then I transported an artillery unit down uh, through this open path. And then I combined that artillery and the French Navy and Air Force uh, to use bombardment combat. And it was in the open, and the Viet Minh were devastated. Uh, and uh, Don had to pull those bloodied units back, and I chased them with air power until they melted back into the jungle. Um, which is exactly the narrative I absorbed from reading books like Bernard Fall Street Without Joy and Frederick Logeval's Embers of War and several other books about the First Indochina War, which describe this French strategic dilemma. Um, but I have to say, reading those books and looking at maps was nothing compared to actually playing Tonkin and having to make those decisions for myself. You know, do I relieve the root colonial force? Can I drop paratroops behind the Viet Minh? How secure is the Delta? Uh, how can I concentrate my barrage and bombardment so I can maximize my firepower advantage? And so on. So playing the game, um, I think, well, first of all, Don learned a great lesson about the limitations of Viet Minh mass troops in the open, uh, which is exactly the same lesson Jop learned in 1950. And I'm sure that my friend uh, won't make the same mistakes again when we play the campaign scenario, uh, which in a way is a shame because I feel like those, you know, those counters on that map with those rules gave us incredible insight into what those commanders had to face back then, except they had no do-overs. And it was amazing to me that two guys taking their first shot at warfare and into China stumbled into the exact same pitfalls and mistakes that the actual combatants had uh, while they were trying to achieve some game objective. Um, and it's it's this possibility that intrigues me. It's, it's that games, these games themselves may be able to preserve history better than books or films or even museums in a certain way because nothing can take you back in time, but a game can take you back to the same decisions and show you why they were so difficult and what they, have may, what they may have caused someone to do, you know, how they caused them to do a certain thing even if it ended up you know, leading to the wrong outcome. Uh, and after playing Tonkin, I really have faith in gaming as something that can preserve history in this unique way that maybe we even even thought about before, um, which I know isn't necessarily why we all play war games, um, 
but that's a pretty important reason for me. And that's it for this time. Hopefully we'll see you next time. Until then, thanks for listening. We'll be back with more wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel, number seven.